0: All these people that you know, all these people that you know, all these people that you know, floating in the river are logs. I could buy myself a reason, I could sell myself a job, I could hang myself on treason, all my folks I know are gone. All these people that you know, all these people that you know, all these people that you know, floating in the river are logs. I could buy myself a reason. myself a job. I can hang myself on trees, and oh my, oh no, I'm gone. I can take this pot plant to the woods and set it free. I'm gonna tell the owners just how nice that was of me. I can find myself a reason. I can have myself a job. I can hang myself on trees, and oh, I am my own damn god.
1: Ha, Ha ha
2: ha 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 ha! Hello, folks. Hello.
1: How's everybody today? I'm fine. Feeling groovy. I've, uh, diving headfirst, just to let you guys know what uh, projects I'm working on. I've been headfirst into uh, the Spanish Civil War for a a, a multi-part inebriated past later this year. That's the next big thing we're going to release. Uh, Chris is going to take a break because he did way more work on hell of earth than I did before we come back and reconvene later this year to start working on the seven years war pod, which I'm very excited about because that's where you go from uh, sort of Brenner, you know, uh, which is how we end uh, hell on earth with, coming back to the Brenner thesis on the emergence of capitalism in England. And then we synthesize and, and merge it with the Seven Years' War and tell the story about how that Brennerian process was uh, enforced through trade, just as Wallerstein says uh, and as world systems theory predict, uh, speaks of. So that's my goal, is to connect those two uh Theory is that people are constantly arguing over into one process. You have a specific, uh, geographically fixed phenomenon of uh, capitalism is emerging out of the um, the creation of a ground uh, a free market in ground rent. That's the thesis that uh, Brenner and Woods uh, uh, would um, promote. I I I. I I buy it. It's a narrative that makes sense to me, and that's how I understand anything. I don't understand numbers. I understand stories, because I am a humanities dork at the end of the day. Never be a STEM lord. Can't do math. Gotta count on my fingers. So I I buy that, and that's how we end Hell on Earth. We had this stagnant system that was broken open. Different places had different reactions to that crisis. The response in England specifically, the uh, Coming together of Reformation and uh, declining uh, agricultural yield in the land, like just de- the the soils being depleted by repeated agriculture, which is just entropy in the system. Um, but as I as I say, not just that the Reformation. If you don't have the Henrician reforms, if you don't have the liquidation of the church in England that process which is occurring elsewhere you know there there were enclosures in germany one of the things that led to the peasant war in 18, uh, 1525 was the uh end of of the beginning of enclosure of public lands in uh middle middle europe so it wasn't just in england that was happening but it and but there you had this Holy Roman Empire, this, this fucking uh, dog's breakfast of a system that couldn't uh, assimilate that without destroying itself. And in England, you have a process that fuses this political revolution with this change in economic conditions to create a new social realm. And then that world is exported. With the uh, Royal Navy and the Bank of England, those are the two things that drive this process. It is the uh, the Bank of England and its system of a stable national debt fueling fiscal expansion, tied to a uh, a a government program fixed around the uh, building up and the assertion of naval uh, technological superiority. Because England's never going to be able to fight on an equal basis uh, on land. It's It's in Europe. It's never going to be able to challenge for continental hegemony against France more than anything. Germany might have broken up, but France was brought even closer together into this absolutist state, this really powerful social machine. But it's land-based. That means you've got an option. You've got a place to go. And they put they put all that money that was being built by the circulation of this currency into the building this navy that just forced everybody else to unleash their bourgeois on their own terms, in their own specific ways. So you have this revolution in the countryside in England turn into a... Uh, political economy, that then conquers the world. And the Seven Years' War is really the breaking, it's the uh, inflection point for this process. Because up until the Seven Years' War, you had these two blocks emerge, right? Out of the Thirty Years' War, Austria and uh, Spain, the Habsburgs, they're in terminal decline at this point. The Dutch have flourished, but they're going to hit their own limits on their viability since they're just a little postage stamp in the middle of the fucking North Sea. France and England become the dueling hegemonic powers, neither of them having hegemony. France dominating on the continent through the massive land army that Louis XIV creates, and England is doing it on the sea with their vast navy. Both of them are also, though, in conflict in the colonies. And, it, and they split North America, which is where the game is going to be decided. And the difference between them is that the powers that be in England, connected to the merchant economy that they've created, know that the fucking winning of the game is in the fucking colonies. They know. Guys like William Pitt the Elder are fixed on the colonies. The Seven Years' War, unlike the other wars that happened under Louis Fourteenth. Spanish Succession, Austrian Succession, which were sparked and began on the mainland in Europe. This one starts in North America. It started by George Washington. And it's over the Ohio Valley in central Pennsylvania. Is France going to get that or is is England? And the British are like, this is where the contest is going to be decided. The French thought that Canada was a pain in the ass. It was a backwater. I mean, part of it is, It's less hospitable. It's colder. There's less of a colonial project for a number of reasons. But for them, it just isn't worth the candle. And so they kind of fight, but as usual, they're focused on the mainland and see North America as this sideshow. Whereas the British see the colonies as the whole game. And then by winning the Seven Years' War, they guarantee their... Hegemony over the world system that will be built out of their economic activity: the triangle trade in the Atlantic uh, and but then also eventually locked into uh, raw material exports in India, spices and uh, spices and exotics and uh, silks from
2: East Asia. And when it ends,
1: England is ready to kick off the Industrial Revolution. The process of fighting that war, of of concentrating capital around these questions of military efficacy, is going to create, as a byproduct, a new material economy that people get to interact with to invent things that might not necessarily be for military use. And that's how you get this explosion, this efflorescence of technological innovation. Yet a similar thing happened at the birth of capitalism in Europe, the military revolution that we talk about on hell on earth. That creates a level. The next time there's an explosion, it's going to kick into an even higher level, which is exactly what uh, happened in England. And so the uh, continental and inter- international hegemon of England Going into the second half of the 1800s, I'm sorry, the 18th century, uh, is now going to have a mechanical heart that everybody else is going to have to run after and try to unleash their bourgeois in order to catch up on. We only have the Russian Revolution because uh, Sergei Vita, in the late 1800s, looked around and said, we can't be feudal anymore if we want to keep being a country. And this process that had gone on over centuries and it involved the uh, the expropriation of the entire North and South American continent and large parts of Africa and the domination of India all of a sudden has to happen like that. And so this feudal uh, kind of quasi-Mongol tributary state has to become a capitalist economy overnight. So that process happens in every European country depending
2: on their specific conditions. Uh, France, invent under this pressure, France invents modern
1: liberalism. Uh, i 'm sorry uh liberal nationalism uh, uh, England invents liberalism france invent invents liberal nationalism, and so that ends up leading to a milit a social revolution in the French Revolution that culminates in this character of Ma- Napoleon who is this synthetic figure who guides this historical energy to France's maximum capacity. And France has an insane capacity at that point. But by that point, what it doesn't have is fucking colonies or a Navy that can compete with the English. And at that point, it isn't even a question of material. They could have put all of their money into building a Navy that could numerically rival the English that would cut off, that would cut them off elsewhere that would undermine their military But they would not be able to replace England's sheer degree of cultural uh, knowledge, stored understanding of naval uh, maneuvers and and naval life that you get out of a, at that point, uh, a deeply seasoned British naval community. Now at the bottom you're churning out you know people are getting literally Shanghaied onto boats and, and kidnapped to be you know the the fucking squabbies and the and the and the uh, the, the ball carriers, but the officer corps is uh, seasoned and knowledgeable in a way that your your expanded French Navy will never be able to compete with because you're going to be dealing with green shoots. You know it's very interesting though uh, Napoleon himself. Uh, was thinking about a naval career uh, at one point. And it's very interesting to imagine him trying to deal with the constraints, the resource constraints of the British Navy, of the French Navy, to exert himself. In the, in the army, he was able to, uh, you know, rise meteorotically because the, the the army was the heart of the French Revolution, after, especially uh, after Thermidor. Because you've law, you've killed the social ferment at the heart of the thing, you're no longer pushing a social boundary, you're defending a social uh uh you're you're uh defending a social truce between classes. Class war has stopped, so that means that that has to be made up for somewhere else, and it's made up for in war, in conflict. Like liberalism is considered sine qua non with uh, passivity. Uh, a desire uh, to negotiate towards solutions rather than violence. But it was the Girondins, it was the moderate Girondins who pushed most deciduously for France to enter a war with Austria, a war that Austria didn't want. The other, the, the, There was an assumption among the French nobility maybe that the other uh, powers of Europe would rush to their aid. But at the end of the day, France is their main rival. If France is uh, is destroyed from within by chaotic uh, social forces, that's good for you. There is no incentive for them to stabilize their social system. Uh, so they And they were basically just waiting to see what would happen. It was guys like Brousseau who pushed for war. The liberals pushed for war because they had to validate this regime now. They had to validate it uh, as a moral uh, undertaking now that it could no longer... Be said to have a, a social vision, a social apocalyptic vision. Marx is from the Rhineland, Trier, the, the child of emancipated uh, Jews,
2: emancipated by Napoleon. So that
1: machine, that social machine of the French army is able to dominate the continent, but it burns out uh, its center. Like those liberals first, they tried, they fought and they lost and it terrified everybody. And then the Jacobins, led by Robespierre, who, by the way, had opposed the war, had said, don't go to war with Austria who said when Brousseau and those guys talked about spreading liberalism at the point of a bayonet, he said, nobody likes it. The only thing people
2: like less than a missionary is an armed missionary.
1: And so it ended up being the the, uh, Girondins. Yes, they were eaten by the revolution. But it wasn't because of their commitment to the social question, it was because of their desire to avoid the social question through a bullicose foreign policy. But then when they start losing battles, uh-oh, now the people want somebody who's more ruthless. And then uh, the fucking Jacobins fill that space. They filled the space of, uh, of a better steward of a revolution that was at that point considered to be deeply
2: imperiled. Why? Because they they fought Austria and Austria was kicking their ass. But this is why this is the you have to think of the process as as, as uh,
1: progressive, no matter what. Because you can look at Napoleon in one hand and say he was the end of the French Revolution, but then you look at the fact that when Napoleon's armies marched into the Rhineland, what did they do? They fucking emancipated the Jews. Like, what they were fighting for had a remnant of what had been fought over. But the class war at the heart of it, the the drive towards social equality, had, had broken against the lack of technological capacity to make that change. France was a peasant society at that point. It did not have means of production adequate to be socialized. And so you get a bourgeois revolution instead. You get a compensatory war with Austria instead, then you have the rise of the Jacobins whose war on the the ruling class and uh, perceived traitors that the what made up the uh, the red terror there the the um, the great terror
2: uh, that was to make up for an unfinished social revolution. But why are they having this social revolution? Because they had been forced
1: into a a global competition for power by England that they could not sustain. They lost the Seven Years' War. Then they tried to get back at uh, England by contributing to the American Revolution. But then, in that process, they bankrupted themselves because they had not modernized their economy and their financial system the way that the English had, with their unified single central bank Lending out a, a stable currency backed by the debt to that to the government in the form of bonds, the French had nothing like that. They were grasping for money from a aristocracy that still held feudal privileges that prevented them from being taxed. They, England didn't have to worry about that. They were getting money. They were getting tax money consistently from their uh, upper class and middle class. Uh, like a machine by that point. And so this thing starts to break open. You get a few f- ruined uh, harvests and you have some uh, rising food prices to kick it off, to make it take it from abstract to concrete, to take it from generalized uh, discontent to a willingness to act. The lack of calories, the hunger in the stomach always is going to be the catalyst. And you have this revolution, and then you have this new state that's oh my god, unleash all these capacities, this rationalized, modernized, capitalized state that that Napoleon births to the world. Then, uh, but it is still not going to beat England, and then all the other countries in Europe come into being in recognition of this new competitive framework. In, Italy and Germany are formed
2: out of the need to compete. And what these explosions are is a
1: given country's social base coming, into ter- coming to terms with capitalism as a mode of life. It is the moment when enough people are feeling the uh, destiny in the air, I guess, to act. And so you have that happen in England in the uh, English Civil War, which we talked about in Hell on Earth. You have it in France in the French Revolution. You have it in Russia with the uh, uh, Russian Revolution. And you don't have it in Spain, which had started off the entire struggle for uh, early modern hegemony in the first place. Like, Spain is the first early modern hegemon. Spain defined the terms of the fucking uh, contest. Like, as, as, as Christendom is collapsing into confessional camps, you have a hegemon. And it's Habsburg, Spain. With with the Holy Roman Empire, it's like a, a kind of a wounded tail. Uh, by the end of that war, by the end of the Thirty Years' War, they're they're cooked, and so that they avoid this reckoning, this intersection between so, the social ferment of uh, people struggling under these old conceptions of identity and religion and and social life with this new demand of being abstracted away from those things, de territor- deterritorialized, pulled from the earth, like in a meaning, like literally pulled from the earth. In the, in, the, in the case of the peasants, you do mean literally pulled from the earth, but also everybody pulled from their social relations, uprooted. And this causes violence everywhere. It is a it is a supernova. It is a birthing pang, as the Condoleezza Rice would say, of a new subjectivity. And Spain's is the latest of all of them, because spain was the first one that means that its formal its its structures were frozen in its apogee because with an empire what got you to your uh, greatest extent will be your downfall because everybody who will have claimed power while the empire was innocent they will be wedded to the things that got them to that point even when they stop working because to change those conditions, to change that subjectivity would be to be, to be, de- to, uh, be declining instead of rising, to, to, to be coming to earth instead of ascending into godhood, and they couldn't have that.
2: Spain takes, and so the Spanish state, this Catholic
1: Counter Reformation state, that takes over uh, North America, uh, a big a big chunk of Central and South America, and has access to the silver. It is this. It is a feudal state in every sense. You got the you got the most Catholic Majesty. You've got your Cortes dominated by grasping local nobles. You've got a huge degree of regionalism and factionalism. You have a very little central uh, authority. I mean, you, do, you have more central authority than anybody to your east because the Spanish kings had control of the Inquisition. The, the Spanish Inquisition is called that because it was not the Catholic Church's Inquisition. The, the officials of the Inquisition, Torquemada and those guys, answered to the king of Spain. And that gave, and it was the only institution that covered all of Spanish territory. It's the only one that that's writ ran everywhere. Otherwise, it was local feudal authority. So that was the thing that they had that a lot of other monarchs didn't. But it was still very relatively little. But they were stuck with those all through the cut fight that would come with the fucking French, with the Dutch when they revolt in Germany against England. They're fighting with this antiquated system that they can never fix because it it got them there. So instead they will slowly be detached and, and lose their empire and become cannibalized. Uh, but they will never create a social engine within organically of Spain to push through these contradictions. They'll just sit there during, through the process of combined and uneven development. And that's where they sat stagnant until the 19th century when Napoleon kicks the door in and jumpstarts modernity. And that is the story of, um, of nationalism, capitalism, bourgeois revolution in Europe is, is defined by Napoleon showing up to a disorganized, in the case of Germany and Italy, or a totally medieval social framework like Spain, and get everybody like, oh shit, what's going on here? And then being... Agitated by the this violent act and oriented uh towards a consciousness of some kind. And of course, since the most active group, social group, is the literate bourgeois, they come to prominence and around ideas of nationalism that are defined by the context of a national contest with France and being dominated by a national government in France. And so for Spain gets this uh Kickstart, and so you have a liberal revolution. that kickstarts liberal, liberal revolutions in Latin America. So that they lose their they lose the empire that by that point wasn't even getting them that much money because local control was so predominant. They were getting a trickle of the resources that they should have, but they because they did not have a modern state capable of extracting them. So they lose the they lose their their holdings most of their holdings in 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 uh, the New World. And they still have the Philippines and they have the Caribbean islands. And then there is this series of uh, civil wars between conservative landed aristocrats uh, organized around the Catholic Church and and, uh, land tenure and all that shit and the uh, up-and-coming bourgeois. Uh, And that fight is all the way through the 19th century. But at no point uh, – it's fought to a draw every time. Capitalism does come, but slowly, cumbersomely, not as a social system, just as this foreign imposition of capital as people invest in industries, mostly though in like Barcelona in Madrid, nowhere else, really, but it's sat on a low simmer now when most of these countries have their big conflagrating moment with capitalism is World War One, which is a continent wide sort of recognition of the of the stakes uh, and a, a, a somewhat deliberate process of uh waging national war to avoid class war. And that leads to this explosion that that massacres millions, including the the large chunks of the working class in these European countries. And then in the aftermath of that, you have battle lines drawn in a modern context. We We are changing our social lives. Who is going to be in charge of this process? And it aligns into these blocks, which broadly are the bourgeois themselves and their liberal institutions and liberal intelligentsia, uh, and the social base that they connect to, mostly professionals. Uh, you have um, the working class broken at this point by what happens in Russia, which is a national manifestation of the class war. No longer is the class war hidden. It is now overt because it is now expressing itself through the framework of these state the state comp- competition that Westphalia in, uh, is seen to like represent the beginning of, and now so that question of like orientation toward Russia splits the working class into factions, which come down to you know uh, the t- uh, things like the amount of degree you're alienated to your social uh, situation, like for example in the United States, uh, immigrant were more likely to be pro-Soviet uh, than native-born Americans uh, among the socialist movement. But for whatever reason, it is uh, difficulty of work, you know, uh, uh, specialization, relative privilege; these things break the working class into fractions, uh, and then you have the uh, lower middle class and the small farmers the people who own their land beyond subsistence, surplus sales, uh, you know, uh, and then uh, the lower middle class in the cities. We're talking clerks, white-collar workers, small business owners, uh, that kind of thing, self-employed, yeah, craftsmen, Uh and all of them are now in this hell this 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 cauldron of of blood and misery that is this dark chasm starting in nineteen fourteen and then just barreling through the horribly tumultuous twenties uh and then the, the the fucking bottom falling out in the great depression and there's a series of conflicts in all these countries over the the resources of the state, and there is a civil war in uh Germany that leads to the permanent defeat of the working class there. They didn't know it yet but they were done. But among the allies and that uh, uh, among the allies you have this fight carrying out uh, in uh, parliaments you know among political parties Uh, all of this on, on top of this this class of liberals trying to you know have the Have all of the benefits of capitalism and all of the development, but without any of this icky social conflict that emerges
2: and it creates this eventual stalemate
1: as fascism takes power in france i'm sorry in Germany and in Italy legally because the divided left is defeated by an alliance of Capital as an independent force defining all these other institutions, contributing to all of them in one degree or another, uh, uh, dominating all of them, but not being defined by any one of them.
2: You've got capital, uh, the
1: uh, military aristocracy, the junkers, and then that middle class and that's enough to take power against the divided working class. So you have this stalemate by the mid-30s where the communism and, and that fascism are rising as these polarized camps in an uh, existential collision course. And then you have Western imperial capitalism, Anglo-American capitalism, connected to
2: this globe-bestriding empire in uh, Africa and Asia. They're all driving against one another. Something's
1: going to pop. And the place that pops is Spain, because the Sp- Spain is the farthest back in this process, has done the least to create uh, durable... And uh, legitimate liberal institutions. It happened to Russia first of all, of course, in 1917, because they were even more uh, backward than fucking Spain, because they were in an entirely different context. Like they were in, they were there, um for most of their history. Their competitive framework was not against Western Europe. It was against the Ottoman fucking empire and like the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and Sweden. It was an entirely different competitive framework, defined by states that had not had so uh, capitalist revolutions. So they they pop a gasket pretty much immediately. The, there is there is nothing they can build between February and October of 1917 capable of channeling the energy that is being unleashed by this social apocalypse that under that undergirded the uh, Russian Revolution, the social apocalypse of World War I. But France, Spain didn't fight in World War I. By that point, they had lost so much of their territory, having had the last of their holdings jacked by the United States in the uh, Spanish-American War, that there was no reason for them to get engaged in any of this uh power block shit any of these uh, alliances because they weren't defending anything they had a a scrap of territory in northern morocco that they would go and have war there instead and they would get their asses kicked by Rift tribes people but that so they had this little pocket colony that they could kind of amuse themselves with and give their army something to do really what it was like, like we have this military because we got this, uh, this this still ruling quasi feudal aristocracy with all these fucking sons that we got to do something with. And what do you do? You put them in the army because they think it's cool, they think it's epic. Because, like that, it's all the it's all these remnant chivalric values that we never got around to overthrowing. So we got all these assholes. What are we going to do with them? Well, let's send them to Morocco. They can get ambushed by a tribesman. So, then while all these other countries had had this titanic experience of World War I that had forged their states one way or the other, uh, the conflict, of course, not coming in Spain and or in France and England because they won, because they were gaining the spoils of, of victory uh, with the United States. So, that social conflict was uh, reduced. But in the losers and in Italy, which fought on the winning side but didn't really get anything for it, uh, the crisis exploded. And you had some sort of uh, radical shift towards something else, fascism in this case, as a mutant response of capitalism under crisis, under specific conditions of a latecomer to the European power political game. So in Spain, by the mid-30s, you have This incredibly uh, powerful working class movement uh, that was divided similarly to the German working class, but the dynamic was different. So in Germany, because I think it was the first place, because feudal uprootment had been happening for so long there, um, yes, you had the, the split between the radical communists and the more conciliatory social democrats. But the communists maintained their basic adherence to a legal approach to power. Yes, they were, in, they were subservient to the common turn. Yes, they intrigued about uh, rebellion and revolution in the, in the early 20s. But by the mid-20s, they were a political party uh, competing for power on a legalist framework of participation and had a party that reflected that. Uh, In Spain, you didn't have that. The more radical faction is anarchists who are trying not to work through capitalism that they feel that they're enmeshed in, which is the experience of a fully capitalized subject. They are trying to resist the imposition of a modernity that will alienate them from a, a conception of social life that is still rooted in the village. It has been stripped of religious language because they hate the church because what the church has done for them and done to them as an agent of power. But the social gospel is still alive and well. And that rejects the requirement of Marxist dialecticianism, which is to push through the process of modernity. Instead, they say no, we will resist modernity. We will step aside, we will we will sidestep modernity and we will develop a post-scarcity economy through the building of it, not through claim, uh, uh, vying for state power, imposing capitalist rationality and central and central authority from the center, and then turning us all into people that we will not recognize. No, we're not going to do that. And there were enough of them because there were so many, more than anything, there were so many landless rural farm laborers the
2: type of people who were fucking revolting in barcelona in like the 1600s
1: so you have essentially a delayed peasant revolt which is what the anarchist movement is it's the fucking peasant war of 1525 finally come to spain it's it's the like it is the, 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 uh, the explosion of the socialist movement in late 19th century Spain, when it is being industrialized, because that's when they all started getting industrialized, whether they wanted to or not. That's when Russia started doing it. That's when Spain started doing it. So you have quickly the emergence of this new working class exposed to these new ideas that instant, almost instantaneously transfer transform the dead liturgy of Christianity – as represented by the Catholic Church and transformed into a social gospel. And the socialists, the Marxists around the UGT Union and the socialist and then later communist parties, that really does represent the Lutheran current in this
2: Spanish Reformation. And the anarchists are your fucking Anabaptists. And they have a much bigger social role than the Anabaptists did in the
1: 1600s, 1500s, because uh, of the technological revolution that means we don't—we aren't just a bunch of people. We aren't just a bunch of unemployed farm workers. We have access to radios, cars, firearms. These things can be uh, organized and brought to us. We can, the, the the factories we work in, we can go in there and seize control of them we can uh organize our social power in a way that the peasants of middle uh, of middle europe in the 1500s who got slaughtered and the anabaptists who got uh cornered and massacred in munster they were able to actually assert power but only for a while because of the uh contradictions at the heart of trying to fight a modern war against capitalist subjects as a feudal one. It's like you're gotta it's it's a hand behind your back. And that's why what I hope to do, getting back to what I started talking about, what I hope to do with this Spanish Civil War mini-series is give every side its due and describe the internal logic of the factions and point out like Given these points of view, these people are right. They are operating from what they believe to be proper premises. And you don't have to choose between them for the very easy reason that they both ended up losing. The anarchists were not able to defend their revolution against the bourgeois and communist alliance. And then the communists were not able to defeat the nationalists once they took power. It wasn't there either way, and the, that's the tragedy of history: is that we're forced to act in conditions that we don't choose, and outcomes are determined by things that we largely don't have any power over. All we can do is 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 find our moral place and act from it, and not try to project. Like that's the liberal paralysis, because the liberal gets to sit in the middle of all this and tisk tisk. And say, "Oh, look at these barbarians! We wouldn't do that," but only because they're sitting in gravy. Only because all of the misery and violence that sustains their world is out of their view. Like I've started doing my research here with the classic, uh, the probably the English, the the most esteemed one-volume history of the Spanish Civil War by Hugh Thomas. It's big. It's 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 comprehensive. It's it's well regarded. It's it's. The fillet of the genre, as Jeff Daniels would say in Squid and the Whale. But, you know, and it's got a lot of great information. And I'm going to go from there, you know, like, okay, what do I need to follow up on? And then I will follow up in those directions. That's how I do it. Start with a big, thick general book and then dive into specific subsections. But what's really funny reading it is Thomas's, like, uh, complacent British liberalism he's just looking at all these sides like oh these these hot-blooded latins they can never compromise but the thing is only the liberal can feel the titanic shift towards a capital of subjectivity coming and be fine with it everybody else is horrified at the sound and wants
2: to stop it and is going to strive to stop it And they, of course, couldn't. And one of the big reasons is you
1: got guys like Hugh Thomas sitting over across the fucking English Channel, sitting there sw- drinking their fucking slave-picked tea and smoking their uh, their fucking opium, you know, having having prostituted the entire world to the pound sterling. And just to say, oh, we were so peace-loving. You had more violence than anybody, but it was all in North America. And in Africa and in India and in China, where you fucking forced them at gunpoint a country to take a bunch of your fucking opium so you could hook everyone on drugs and rebalance your uh, your specie uh, trade books with China because, oh, no, we're we're uh, buying too many Chinese imports and we don't have anything they want. How about fucking drugs? And so we have this idea of like where you should act, how you should act in a crisis, what you should do that is, that assumes a a liberal uh, distance from uh, consequences. So that's what I hope to do with this, is just be like, everyone is acting how they thought they needed to. And the tragedy is that that's those clashes are the only way that any clarity comes to those sort of situations, and that the last thing you should do is sit around trying to figure out who was right and who you would be. You're not them, you're you, and you have your own questions in front of you. We all do, and we have to defeat that self-satisfied liberal in our head. Somebody asked about Ernst Thälmann and in the, in the German Communist Party of the 30s and whether they could have done something to prevent... Or the 20s and early 30s. No, yeah. Uh, whether they, they could have done something to prevent the uh, Nazis coming to power. I don't think so, because by definition, the German Communist Party is going to be hotwired to the foreign policy goals of the Soviet Union. Like that is that's what defined the Communist Party is that it was orienting its uh, itself away from a German-based political movement like the sPD and a, a a as an instrument of the foreign policy of the Soviet Union. and this to them was the strategically smart thing to do. Why would you not want to work in coordination with one of the powers of Europe, which is now in the hands of the workers? It made sense to them. They were committed to doing it. There was no way we were going to stop them from wanting to do that. So the question becomes, what did the Soviets tell them to do? And the fact is, is that Soviet management of the German Communist Party throughout the 20s was awful. It was disastrous because it was being done in Moscow by people who didn't know what was going on in Germany. Because the only way that you stop the Nazis from taking power legally and force them to to rebel, which they want to do and will do if they have to, Uh, like the uh, anarchists were able to force in Spain. Like, okay, we know you guys are going to fucking do this at some point. Do it so that we can take power in fighting him, Because we're not going to win through the ballot box. We're the communists. We're the existential threat to everything that the state is. It will not give us power through the front door. but the only thing that would have stopped them, the the Germans the Nazis from taking power uh through the electoral system was to have a electoral front with the the socialists which they figured out after the Nazis took power which is when they switch immediately from the uh third internationalist uh social fascist uh demand to uh refuse any and all engagement with uh, social democratic parties, because they were social fascists, worse than the fascists, it switches almost overnight to a policy of encouraging popular front solidarity with not just other working class parties, but fucking bourgeois parties as well. Which is why you see the communists playing a socially reactionary role in the Spanish Civil War. The communists come in and are like, what the fuck is this social revolution bullshit? What are this, this collective ag- agriculture? What are you doing turning the fucking grand hotels into soup kitchens? You're scaring the straits. Hey, CNT, you're scaring the hoes, Span- France and, uh, and Britain. But again, it's not their fault. Why shouldn't they orient themselves towards Moscow? The SDP shot them all. The SDP conjured the Fry Corps and then out of the FRI Corps, the Nazis, to defeat the left. But somebody had to do it. Somebody had to make the tactical decision to either do two of one one thing. Tactically a lie as a delaying measure with the social democrats, even if they hated you, find a way to do it. Because yes, the SDP also resisted the communists, but it was mutual polarity. If one side was moving towards, something might have happened. You either do that or you plan for a fucking seizure of power. You plan to fight it out. Maybe you do them hand in hand. You make the short-term agreement to do the long-term plan for uh, military action. But what they did was neither of those. They sat around and waited to get fucking whacked in the head by the fucking Nazis. And that's that's all the direction of the common term.
2: Yes, that decision, that decision depends on your strength in that
1: moment, which is a decision that can't be made in Moscow. See what I'm saying? In doing the thing that they thought was going to help them the most, tie themselves to a world revolution headquartered in Moscow, they hamstrung themselves and made it so that it was impossible for them to act in the moment. Like bourgeois bourgeois democracies were not going to survive. The uh, in Europe, we're not going to survive World War II, and the liberals that are looked backward as heroes, people who were trying to settle everybody down and, and prevent all this violence, were actually just the most deluded motherfuckers around because they were the only people who didn't know that. And a lot of liberal judgment of these actors retrospectively basically says, well, if you'd all only believed in it, too, it would have kept going. But belief is in results, and the results of bourgeois democracy were uh, that they had rendered themselves moot to anyone but the most deluded and or uh, most materially adhered to
2: this bourgeois state among us. So it's again it's just a big tragedy. I mean, uh Solomon himself it's kind of funny. Like
1: he was just a kind of a bimbo he or he was a he was the kind of guy that like uh was fetishized by by communist iconography like a like a real working man, but he didn't really have a uh, nuanced understanding of what was going on. But that's the thing, nuance kills you at a certain degree. You need to have people of both sides the fucking neurotic and the man of action, the Trotsky and the Lenin, to move forward. And they didn't have that. As I have said before, the the Lenin of the German Revolution was fucking Frederick Ebert. He was the person who saw what was happening and acted, but he acted from the position of wanting to save the bureaucratic structure of the Social Democratic Party, not to advance a working-class revolution. And that is because... The German working class political movement had had thirty years of legality to build that kind of uh, uh, self-regardance, whereas the Bolsheviks had been, who were the most mo- motivated of the of the political organized class,
2: uh, had been illegal right up until the revolution. Would the U.S. be better off with a parliamentary system? I mean,
1: it's hard to imagine any structural change meaning anything because in order to have structural change, you would have to have a drastic political... You couldn't have moderate reform at this point absent a revolutionary attack on existing power structures. Like you can't even dream of reform through the uh, the system we have because of its total capture at, at at not just the level of institutions
2: but at the level of the individual mind. Like the closer you are to machinery of power in this country. The more
1: hollow you are of human feeling, of human values, the more you adhere to a reptilian worship of this alien structure,
2: this this, this oily piston spider... And because it is so technologically abstracted, those points are very few,
1: and the people there are not like you and me i mean we're all we've all been warped dramatically by our exposure to this social system and our relative position within it it's defined us, it's stamped us, but there is still an uh, ambient humanity that that crinkles and sparks underneath the surface. But it
2: disappears the farther up you go. Conditions change, and they could lead to dramatic change.
1: But, say, a Parliament for America... Would only come on the other side of that process. It could not help initiate that process. You know what I mean? Because that, I think, is the uh, the fantasy. If only we had X, Y, and Z institutions. You are take you are in a desire to appear reasonable. You have uh, made invisible the steps that would have to get you there, and our current political system cannot be changed that way. By which I mean citizens voting in elections as a measure of political participation. If that is what we're assuming, and I think people who talk about reforming structures like uh, electoral
2: systems uh, assume, then you can't get that from here.
1: And so it becomes sort of a beside the point because that question of like is is a parliament good will it be helpful need to be made by
2: people in a position to build it I mean,
1: and a a good way to point this out is Australia has a lot of the features that a lot of reformists in America dream we had. They have short elections. They've got uh, proportional representation in their Senate, although it's insane they have a Senate. Get rid of that. What are you talking about? They have mandatory voting. And they're
2: uh, as neoliberal and uh, devoid of politics as we are. God, Australia is so cut because they're cut by England and the United
1: States in different ways. It's brutal. Like they, they're, they're, they're just
2: they are getting lucky, Pierre. Like they've got a, they've got a queen. She's
1: still the queen. They, they got the Union Jack on their flag. Their uh, currency is called the dollar. And they're uh, fixated on our culture, of course. Oh, right. They've got a king. Oh, my God. I got to start saying that. We've got a king. I thought that was never going to fucking happen. When I was a kid, I was like, when the fuck is the Pope going to die? Because I wanted to see a papal election. And I got to say, I'm not having it with these long-ass Pope uh, terms. In the Middle Ages, the Pope would drop dead every tw- two
2: weeks. Now they keep fucking living forever. I want there to be like a year of the four Popes type deal.
1: Somebody Or somebody set up a, a fucking anti-Pope somewhere. Get African Pope. Give me an African Pope. Robert Sarah. They always say that he's a front runner. The Pope, the uh, Archbishop of Ghana, or something. Ratzinger did not last long. He just died. If he had not quit, we would. I would only be seeing my second ever papal election. Now, instead. I still only had two
2: because Francis and Ratzinger. I want another one. All right, I got to go, guys. Bye.